This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former professional footballer, academy manager and first team coach Rod Underwood. He discusses his club advisory role that takes him all around the globe, how he goes about setting up academies and their curriculum, and how to get players to buy into a new system when going into a new club. I hope you enjoy. So Rod, first of all, thank you for taking some time up on your um, on your Thursday morning. I guess the first question is, how are things? How are you guys over in the states? Yeah, I mean, we are optimistic. Obviously, with the vaccine, we're optimistic. Um, to be fair, it's probably the, the brightest light we've seen in a while in terms of, you know, maybe going over the hump and you know coming down. You know, we still have lots of issues. You know, there's hot spots and all throughout the country. Um, we up in this area, um, we we've had it rough for a while. It's eased up. It's sort of been sort of a roller coaster, up and down. Um, and I just believe that you know, hopefully, people will be smart over the holidays, uh, and we can really start to get the vaccine going, and uh, people will continue to keep their distance and wear their mask, and we can get through this. You know, hopefully, spring summertime. And then for you guys, in terms of your, your football season or soccer season, how has that affected um, your work with, with the groups that you work with? Yeah, for, for me, it was a downtime in the beginning. Um, it was kind of unique because of my role and my current role. In the, I'll give you two things. First, my current role in the club, um, I was coming out of my busy time. So back in February, I was finishing up with all of my teams and all of my teams were going to go off into the high school. So I was going to be in a break period. So I really didn't personally get affected that way because my my players were going to be off from, they were going to be playing high school March, April, and May. And I would see them again late May, June. So for me, it's like, okay, yeah, this, you know, by the time high school season's over, then they canceled high school season. Uh, but by, by the time our new season starts in, you know, late May, June, this will be done. I'll jump in. So we had about um, had about two weeks of downtime um, where we weren't doing anything. And so and then we we jumped back in probably in June now. So we our club has been going since June, but we've had different phases. You know, from just small pods of only six in a group, no no crossing, no mixing. We did that for uh, some time. Um, we got to a point where it looked like we were going to play some games. Um, and that came to the point of we were probably, I would say, 10 days away from games and the numbers spiked like crazy. So there were no matches to be played. And so now we've just been training. Uh, but at least within our teams, we can, you know, we can intermix a whole regular training in that sense. Um, and then on my consulting side, I do a lot of international. So I was actually, uh, when COVID first hit, I was probably 10 days away from heading off to Egypt to work with the club in Egypt to, you know, help them set up a club, help them with their curriculum, you know, their methodologies and, and help them develop their, their first team all the way down to their academy. So that got shut down. And so my consulting is mostly, mostly international has sort of been, it's been dead, right? I haven't done any, any work uh, whatsoever in terms of travel, communication, just 
to being on the ground in countries no and then on the on the college side of things also have a involved in a um, company called i soccer path which helps players find um which helps players find their their right fit for a college uh so for us there was an uptick in work because you know with all the ncaa regulations no recruiting the players really had a lot of initiative to be seen create film and so we try to help a lot of players in that regard so it sounds like you're definitely keeping yourself busy. Um, I yeah. think we'll definitely come back to the um, consulting side because I think it'd be really interesting to divulge into how you create curriculums and all, all the way through. I guess on the initial team that you work with, um, what is the team? Where are you based in terms of size and stuff? What are you looking at? What, what, yeah, what? Yeah, my role um, in the club is I work with. Uh, Mostly um, players that are about 14, 15 through 19. That's most of the, that's the bulk of the, the players I work with. So I, we coach those teams. They play in what's called the ECNL. And if we know anything, so last year, the development academy that was run by, the, by U.S. soccer went away. ECNL had always been around, but mostly predominantly girls. Um, and they really, after the DA, the development academy went away. Uh, we found ourselves needing that next level. So we joined the ECNL on the boys' side. We're already on the girls' side. Um, and we joined the boys' side. Um, and so that's the highest level of, of football in terms of youth. The MLS is starting a new league, you know, uh, the gen next generation league, and that's coming. So that that should be a good league too. So I for that. And also I work with uh, – we started a program during COVID uh, for college players who couldn't be out in their clubs, out in their colleges training. So we get those guys, we train with them. Um, and uh, we hope that that will something, we'd already had a, a men's team and a women's team that played in a, in the local highest level amateur league. Uh, and hopefully we can, we can expand on that now and, and really do a lot more with that too. Just, you know, COVID's making you rethink a lot of things, how you do things. Obviously, like you've alluded to there with uh, the MLS starting their own league, I guess it, it would be challenging time for US at the moment, US soccer, because you've kind of got your traditional draft system that you have in, you know, your NFLs, NBAs, um, etc. And then if they try and integrate an academy system similar to what you have in Europe, which kind of almost bypasses that college age group and goes straight into professional around 18 years of age, is, do you think there's going to be some challenges in terms of that setup coming into you across the U.S.? Well, give you, I mean, back, I, I, I spent off and on about eight years with the Portland Timbers, everything from the first team uh, in the USL days, uh, all the way down to the academy, the reserve team, all those various things. I was involved in helping to start their academy back, I think it was 2012 or maybe 11, somewhere in that range. Um, so. I think the, personally, I think the academy is, is, is extremely important. And also in 2014, I helped start the Sacramento Republic Academy, who will be in MLS in 22, I think it is. So they'll be moving into MLS in 2022. Um, I, think the, I think the academy is a whole different part of sport in America because it's very difficult because we have this pay-to-play model that in 
I know in other places around the world because I've been there that you know there's some fees that are charged, but not the not the amount of fees that are charged in in America. So those players that are in the academy system, their focus is the professional the professional pathway to becoming a, a professional player. But what you have in America, which is so strong, is the college system and education. So even in our academy system, there's still a mix of players focusing on school and being in the academy it's you don't really have that one or the other where you have in a lot of other places around the world um you know in academies in america you know grades are vital we want kids because if we understand that every kid's not going to be a professional and in america and in, in football in american football um signing a professional contract is not life-changing generational dollars that a player receives so regardless, they do sign a professional contract, they're still going to need the education to continue on in the next 50, 60, 70 years, whatever that looks like uh, in their life. So getting an education. So, we, so it is a part of, of what the, the academy system is in America. So how would that be balanced in a week? Because I imagine if, you know, if you've got training for Portland, for example, and then your club team or your local team you play for, imagine that can be quite challenging for, for people to manage both. What would that look like for a player if they weren't participating in both? Well, you, you typically, you, you, you can't really do both, right? I mean, there's some hybrids and, and ones that are not like, um, that are not, academies that are not ad attached to the professional club, they have some hybrids where you can be in the academy and you can kind of float back and forth. But once you join a MLS Academy or a USL Academy, as they were, they're making some tweaks to it. I'm not quite sure what that's going to look like. But once you're in, you're in that Academy. So you're focused. So if you're at the Sounders Academy or the Timbers Academy or, you know, the Red Bulls Academy, that's your, that's your team and that's who you belong to. That's how it, I mean, it doesn't sound right, but that's how it is. That's who you belong to. Um, that's your organization that you play for. Um, and it's something that, um, that you're part of. And, you know, a, a typical week, I mean, in academy, it's four or five, six days a week, just depending on what's going on. And so would those players in that environment, like you've alluded to there, still look towards the educational side as a possible backup to go into college if they weren't able to get right the way through the ranks at that said team? Yeah, no, no question. And, and, the, the education piece is still very much a big part of it um, because um, it, it, it's just the way America is, is in a sense that if you look at the number of people outside of sport that go on to, to receive, you know, four-year degrees and then on to receive a, a advanced degree as a master's degree or PH, it's a high number. So if players say they do even sign a contract and they do play for their, their club or they get picked up by another club, right? After they've, you know, gone through the academy. The reality is, even if they play 20 years, you know, if they play 20 years, they sign at 18 and they play 20 years, they're 38 years old and they haven't made tens of millions of dollars to where they are starting their own business. They are financially independent. It doesn't, it just doesn't, that's, that money's not there like in the NBA or the NFL, you know, that, that money's just not there. So they need that education piece. 
that's kind of an experience for you because from doing my research kind of beforehand, you had a, a playing career out in the States. You just want to talk through what that kind of pathway looked like for you and then I guess how it's led you on into this coaching path. Yeah, I mean, if I go all the way to the beginning, I mean, I can just remember the first time I ever touched the soccer ball. I knew that was football was my thing. That was what I wanted to do. Um, and I played like every other kid through the youth, through my local club, and, you know, getting better and better and playing on, you know, higher level teams all the way up through the college. And I played in college for four years. Um, what and, college did you uh, go to? What's that? What college did you go to? I played at Furman University. So if you, so the, so you would probably know this name, Clint Dempsey. Clint Dempsey went to that school, but I'm a lot older than Clint, obviously. <laughs> so, uh, but gives you an idea what kind of school that it was. Um, so I went on and then after that, I played about six years professionally. And at that time it was, it was a funky thing because the old NSL, you know, with the New York Cosmos, most everyone knows that name with when Pelé came and uh, Beckenbauer played on that team. Cruyff was here for a while. George Best played for a while in the NASL. Um, and right when I was finishing high school, going on to college, the, the NASL was falling off. And indoor soccer, which was turned out to be very at the time uh, in America. And I played six years professional after playing. While I was still playing, I was doing all my coaching licenses and got my, you know, received my coaching licenses. And immediately after I finished playing, I jumped right into coaching. Uh, and I've been doing that ever since. And did you realise kind of at the time that you knew that the that playing had kind of an infinite lifespan where there was going to be a common point you're going to have to retire and so you wanted to prepare yourself for that next step? And did you know that you wanted that to be in football? That's a great question. And I think, I don't think it was a conscious thing, but I, but I just knew that it, it was going to end. I don't think it was, and I think partly because you know, my dad was a hard worker, you know, get up every day, do the job, work, work, work. So I think that was that that was sort of instilled in me. Um, and but I always knew I wanted to stay in football. I knew that I wanted to stay in football. And I knew that at that time, right, you, at that time as a player, you don't in the way professional football was, you didn't think about being a sporting director or a technical director or being vice president of soccer. Those things weren't there. So the easiest step was was to go into coaching. And at that time, did, did you see a big difference between like the European game where that was and to where the States was in terms of setups and tactics and strategies and all that different stuff? Yeah, I mean, for us, right, unlike today, right, we can we can really learn from ourselves, right? We can learn from within, but really the all the learning that came in my time came from without, from, from, from outside, from if it was South America, Central America, Mexico, if it was Europe, you know, sort of my, my education starts as a player was uh, watching German soccer, watching soccer made in Germany. That was about the only thing on television. Uh, and then obviously, uh, the English football began to grow in America. So then learned a lot by watching English football. And, uh, and then, you know, South American football was beginning to take shape. So for me, if I look at myself, I mean, early influence was Germany and England. Uh, middle, you know, midway through, it became the, the Dutch way, Dutch football. I learned a lot from Dutch football. And I, it's a real important, I think, 
I can't say now, but I can say I've, I've always felt like the Dutch football was probably the most, in my time, the most educational piece of football anywhere in the world. Why did you how say they that? Talk, just how they taught the game, how uh, even at the time you were learning football in an educational setting, right? Um, and I know a lot of people say, well, ed educational setting and then coming to the coming to the pitch and playing, that doesn't equate, but actually it does equate. Um, I just felt that their organization, their structure and how they taught and everything was game-based and which still is, everything was four fours, and it still is, but it was really all about the game. And, and to be fair, if you look at what's happened around the world, they've led the way for other countries to develop their educational structures as they have. Um, and obviously, you know, Spanish football is, is a huge, huge, huge influence in my life uh, in terms of the educational of, of football. And that, that's, that's real important. So for me, I've, I, I've taken all the pieces, right, and tried to make them my own and make my personality of who I am as a person and what I like and try to now influence the game in that manner. And do you think it influenced U.S. soccer in a broader sense, having all those different uh, opportunities to learn and different experiences coming over or ability to watch different leagues and on TV, etc.? Yeah, and I, and I think, I think in, a, in a way, the U.S. was ahead of its time in the sense of, as we know, globalization of fo football is the most globalized sport in the world. What does that mean? That means that it, it has the labor force. So, you know, obviously players from South America playing in England, English players playing in South America, you know, players playing all over the world. And then you look at the globalization of the business side of, of football in the sense of Coca-Cola is sponsoring clubs all over the world, Nike, Adidas, their, their, their home bases are in different countries. And then you look at now with, uh, technical directors, sporting directors, or, you know, sporting director, an Italian sporting director is in England, an English sporting director is in some other country. So the globalization of football, I think U.S. was ahead of that and the education piece because we were taking from everywhere and we were globalizing the sport early on before, before anything happened. And really what really globalized sport in terms of the labor market was, was the, you know, the Bozeman Act that changed everything, right? That changed the, the freedom of freedom for players to move everywhere. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting point because I know um, I've read books kind of on the globalization of, of football. And I think one of the things they attribute England's struggles kind of um, to win tournaments, etc., was down to the fact that we didn't knowledge share with all the other countries in Europe. We kind of stayed to our little island and go, no, our way's best, or um, didn't have that free freedom of knowledge share which has kind of put us in a behind position, if you like. Um, and it's only kind of over the last probably 15 or 20 years or so that we're now trying to get more and more people across. Obviously, with the Premier League, you've got more and more foreign managers and players coming off and integrating their ideas of nutrition, strength conditioning, all that type of stuff. It's kind of updated the, um, updated the football in this country. And I guess that, that's something a process that America is kind of ongoing at the moment. I, I think one of the things you're seeing more and more is, um, whereas before you alluded to people like Pele and George Best and stuff come across towards the end of their career, you're getting some quite big names and quite high profile players coming across in the prime of their careers 
um, to play in the US. Is that having benefits, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, the, one th- the one thing I say about football that no other sport can do is there is no limits to football, what it can touch. Because football is, football is the world's sport. And we need to make sure that we're, every country needs to make sure they're open to the world's sport through knowledge sharing, through best practice, through uh, business side, technical side. That's, that's what makes the, that's what makes for me, that's what makes soccer so unique and so wonderful is that the people that you meet from whatever country and you don't, you don't even speak their language, but you have a connection of this ball. And sometimes they're trying to be very good friends of yours. And just, it's just so, football is such a wonderful, wonderful sport, right? That it brings the world closer together in such a, such a, such a nice way. Do you think, apologies, do you think that America will keep some of its more traditional things like having general managers, for example, um, do you think that that's something that will be incorporated into the clubs in the US rather than going for a European model where you have a manager that oversees everything you change? Do you think that you will have like your head coaches, your GMs and all that type of setup within club structures? I think it's I think it's going to I think because of the the structure of America, again, I think it's going to depend on the clubs. I don't think it'll be a. I don't think I don't see it as a as a global approach of the MLS and USL all saying, okay, we're going to have, uh, you know, we're not going to have general manager, we're going to have sporting director, we're going to have president. You know, I think I think it varies on what influence those particular owners have and what they like is best. I don't I don't see it. I'm not sure that I see it as a total transformation, um, because you. I just, it's just America. It's hard to explain. It's just America. America doesn't, America doesn't do everything the same. And that's just part of the way that. We're such a big place and everyone has their their different values in each place. I mean, like I was was speaking to friends the other day and you actually look at the distances that you guys travel even to go to games and it's crazy compared to what we do here. You know, the local derbies out there are, you know, four, five, six hours apart, whereas here they're 20 minutes down the road. Um, yes. So yeah. I think I think just the the, the you know the, the disperse of clubs and the disperse of people naturally kind of breeds those different ideas and whatnot. And I guess that each region's going to select what they think's best for the people um, and the yes. players in their areas. Yeah, my my philosophy is I look at every professional club because I I believe in the power of sport to influence the city, the state that it's involved in. I, I, I firmly believe that, that it needs, sport needs to influence where it is. Um, so for me, um, it's really important that in the inclusion and the diversity piece of soccer, of football, it needs to look like, it needs to, I believe that the people that work inside the organization, I believe that the people that work within the organization, I believe that the players, I think it needs to reflect the demographic of that region and of that state. I do believe that because I believe that you get more buy-in from fans when they can relate to, yes, it is a global sport, but we also understand where we are in this in this picture of this global sport. So I think it's real important. And do you think at the top level, I guess, when they're drafting, do you think that's considerations that the, the top people play or not? I don't think so. I mean, I, 
I don't think so. I know there's some clubs uh, that have, uh, they look at the holistic approach in the sense of they look at, does that player fit uh, the characteristics of the club off the field? Does that player fit the characteristics of the field? Is that player, some, some clubs are very socially and have a lot of social initiatives. Is that player involved, especially with social media, you can find out. Will that player buy into the social initiatives or create their own social initiative within our organization? I do. I believe some clubs look at that, but in the end, I think you're looking for which player is going to uh, provide us the best chance to win games and to hopefully be uh, a perennial winner uh, within the league. I, I believe that's what you're looking for most, most importantly. And how does that challenge you? Because obviously what you've mentioned earlier is that you've obviously you've worked um, in Portland and worked in Sacramento and creating academies in both. So obviously in your belief is to think about the demographic and the type of kids and stuff going to come into your programme. How does that challenge you as um, an individual creating those programmes and those academies to reflect the regions that they're in? Um, whilst obviously you, I would imagine you can have some non-negotiables of what you think an effective academy would look like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 important, right? Um, for me, it's it's simple, right? You 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 have to an academy academy is an interesting situation because you're looking at a 14, 15, 16 year old, and you're saying, can they make the first team? So basically, in a sense, right? Without because unlike at the top level, right? You have a what I call uh, in research, right? You have this qualitative theory, right? This theory of how you want your team to play, the style, the methodology. And with data science, you, you over the course of time, you, you use the, the hard numbers, the data, to say that this is a real possibility to create this. Unlike in an academy, you're using really a qualitative approach, meaning that it's it's opinion, your opinion, it's the people around you's opinion, it's the people that's work with them opinion, but there's no hard data to say that this player is ultimately going to be a, a first teamer, right? You can look at what the characteristics of that player that it has compared to first team players, right? Because, you know, it's funny, you look at, I, I you watch a U, you perfect, you watch the U18 Premier League team of whatever team, and you say, boy, that player's got the characteristics of this player on the first team, right? And so you can look at it from that perspective, but does it transfer into the first team because you got the physical, the mental, the nutritional, all those things? So to answer your question, for me, I always side on the fact, is this the best talent available? Regardless of what they look like, if it throws off the, the idea, the idealistic view of that, this is going to throw off the balance of the demographic of what the academy looks like. But if you look at it, are there, so if you look at it as, as a checklist, are there 10 things that we're looking for? Do they fit eight of those? Do they fit six of those? They fit two of those. They fit two, they're probably not going to come into the academy. But if they fit seven, yes, they'll come in. So those are the, that's how you kind of balance it out. For me personally, that's how I do it. And when you go into those places, do you get a um, kind of a guide from ownership or the people above you as to say, this is what our academy vision needs to be or philosophy needs to be? Or is that something you can 
kind of create yourself and say, well, we want our teams to play like this, or we want our characteristics to look like this, or we want strength and conditioning wise, we want them to be excellent athletes. Are, are you the one that gets to make that decision or is that kind of brought down to you? In my, it all depends on the age of the club, right? So if you're going into a well-established club, it's easy, easy, you know, easy for all of us to understand this, this comparison in a, you know, but Barcelona, right? The history, they have their way. They're not changing their way, but if you notice they're tweaking their way, but they're not going to change their core values in there. Same as you look at Pep. Pep's tweaking his ways, but he's not changing his core values by, by no means. So, but if it's a fresh young club, like in America, there's a lot of fresh young clubs, then I have the opportunity to say, okay, you know, the right back, these are the characteristics technically, tactically, physically, psychologically, all those things, right? The left back, these are all the things. So you, you create the characteristics of each position, but you just don't create the technical and the tactical. You create the holistic, for me, the holistic of view of that player. So if I'm looking at, you know, the physical side, the technical side, the tactical side, the mental side, right? Even the relational side of it. You look at all those things and that's sort of, you can, you can set that. But if you go into a club that's already have a well-established methodology that has won things, that has a well-established way of doing things, then you come in and you, and you follow that protocol that's been set. So for you, in Sacramento, I'm assuming that was new. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Is that a new club? So for you, I know they talk about the first 90 days or first 100 days in a row as your opportunity to kind of lay foundations. What did you do in that first 90 to 100 days to try to get that academy to a place before it could go on and thrive? Well, for me, it was, it was actually more than that because once I was hired, it was... About six months before we actually got on the field. So for me, it was a six-month process. So one of the first things I started to do was to write the methodology and the curriculum. Um, that was the first thing I started to do was to do that. Because so what, did they, what did they look like? The, the day was long. <laughs> you know, the days were long. Uh, and it took me probably... To get what I consider my first quality draft of the methodology slash curriculum, took about three months um, to get that, how I wanted it, refreshing it, sharing it, looking at having various eyes of people that I trust, read it, look at it, ideas, change it. And that took about three months to do that. And then once we hit the ground running and once we started playing, I always call that curriculum, you know, a living document, that it was changing and evolving throughout the course as we learned as we saw the types of players and saw that hey this is just two way out there this is just not going to work or this is we can expect more in this area um so i mean it was and and then it was scouting right so scouting and that once i got hired i immediately connected with all the people in the area asking for recommendations for their their best play their best players and going out the training sessions watching watching matches um and just, you know, as much as I could, scouting as much as I could, and then developing a small scouting network and getting advice from uh, from various people in the area. And what, what's the lowest age group that you traditionally go to? When we started in Sacramento, we were 14, 16, and 18s. Those were the three age groups that we, that we focused on. And now they've gone down to sort of a pre-academy to like a, a U12 academy, 
you know, some some clubs now they partner with local clubs, but it's for so they don't have to get involved in that 12 and younger. They can really focus on the on those older older players. But they partner in a sense that they provide guidance and they provide support of what players should look like coming into the academy if they want those players having a chance to be in the academy and hopefully going on into the first team. So that's interesting because I know that um, what you're alluding to there is kind of a German model where in Germany a club will kind of be responsible for like five or six grassroots clubs around it will provide their coaches with support and training and whatnot to kind of work the ground up. Whereas if you look at more traditional English model, we start our age groups really young. So our pre-academy is from uh, under sevens, under six, under sevens, which you know is five or six years old. So, <laughs> but, but if we left it till, you know, U12, for example, pretty much all the good players would have gone by that stage. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, 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 I know that when, Players have come in. Let's say we found a player at U16, right? And that player has come in. That player ultimately could be a top player. There's a huge learning curve for that player. So I see the, I see the benefit of starting young if it's done in the right mindset. But because, you know, I've seen it done very badly at, at you know, U7s, U8s, and kids will play and never play again. Because ultimately ultimately what we want is every player to eventually never leave the game to have some hand in the game some way if they go back and coach their kids at a young age if they become a referee if they become a high level you know working inside a pro club or simply working in a grassroots club so that experience at five six seven eight years old sets the pathway for a kid potentially staying in the game for lifelong, right, or not, and being wanting to stay connected to the game lifelong. No, I agree. I think the importance of them having fun and enjoying those and getting good experiences at those younger ages is, is the key. And we're fortunate in the environment working for the most part, that is what the kids have and, and they enjoy being there and they, they find it really fun. Um, just linking back to what you said there, so your methodology and curriculum, what the details are though, what they're like, when you're looking at the methodology of coaches, what would that be? If you're looking at curriculum, did that work on a micro, macro level? Was it offset each week? What did that look like? What I, what I tried to do, if I just work on, on, a, on, the, on, the, on the Sacramento model, that was, for us, we, I would go on a, on a six week, right? On a six week plan, let's say. And of that six weeks, these are the things that we want to, these are the things that we want to, to touch, right? Um, and it's real important for those things because those are the things that were needed to build so that the player would have the opportunity to someday come out of the academy and, and play in the first team. So would that so be tech-tack or would that be holistic? It was, it was holistic. It was, so giving, so if we break it down to a training session, every coach, right? Every training session needed to be broken down into these areas, the technical, the tactical, the physical, the psychological, and the social. Every training session needed to incorporate all those things into a training session in the way that I wanted it to be done in the methodology and the curriculum. So you're saying, well, that's a lot of information in a, in a training session, right? But if you're playing the game, right? If you're, play, if you're just doing exercises, no. But if, you're, but if you are 
game-based, yes, all those things come in. The socialization come in because you're talking about teammates. You know, you're talking about the technical. You're talking about games. Can you pull pieces out of that big picture? Yes, you can. But that, but in every session, those those points needed to be those points needed to be involved in that session. Did I coach? Did you coach every point? Of course not. But you you train the session in the sense that it created socialization, that it created a high level of technical, tactical, physical, and that all that was based on the cycle, right? So if we're in a week of only a game on Saturday, then we can do a little more physical per se, right? We if we were on a if we're on a cycle where we were because in in, the, in America and academies you could play on Saturday or you could play on Friday, you could be off on Saturday and have another match on Sunday. So all that was based on that, and, and, and sometimes it was they've they've changed it a bunch. They've made changes, but now it, it used to be you could play Saturday and Sunday. So and sometimes it, was, it wasn't even a twenty four hour turnaround. Okay. <laughs> so you know you you can only imagine right how the kids felt um but yeah, yeah so that's those that, age groups you yeah. were the younger ones they're a bit like rubber bands they just fly around everywhere but yeah. the age groups you're describing that would be a real physical load on those players yeah it would be a physical load right so we we'd base it on on those things and so would you so say for example you've got a, a theme one week of playing out from the back um, and trying to build play from the back. Would your next week um, be a lead on from that? So would it be playing through midfield or would you go the opposite of pressing from the front so that they're kind of getting two weeks to do both? How would that look? Typically, so if we, if we take a step back, right? We take a step back. So in Sacramento, the most important thing about the game for us was the ball. So... What does that mean? We wanted to have the ball. We wanted to have the ball as much as possible. Uh, so from there, everything revolved around that. So if we answer your question specifically, if we were going to um, build from the back, then we would just take the next step. It was just the building blocks, right? And now if we looked at them, let's, let's say we were looking at a match against a team that high pressed, right? That really pressed you, right? So we would make some tweaks to that based on the opponent too because that's also important for players to learn that yeah we're we're methodically going forward but in the real world that you're going to go in yeah you might be methodically going forward but you're going to come up against Liverpool so we got to make some adjustments for Liverpool right you know so that's just kind of so yeah with this methodical approach but there's also the real world approach too that if we're coming up against we're the last place team right and the top team they're very good and they've got five guys that look like they're going to sign with the first team we got adjustments because that's what's going to happen in the real world of football if you move on to the next level and so how does this reflect in the work that you do internationally because i'd imagine obviously what we're talking about here is in particular to the states how is this planning and this curriculum sector affected if you go out to egypt or if you go into mexico or if you go to south africa or wherever else you go i don't know what places how does the demographic of the country and then affect the curriculum you're able to put in place? So basically what I do is, I'd say Egypt, because that was the one that was, was going to happen this year. So there's a lot of time, there's a lot of preparation time in, in terms of speaking to ownership, 
speaking to staff that's already there to understand where they understand where they are, where they are at the moment, and where they want to go. Um, so, if let's say the club I was gonna, it was a second division club in Egypt, and their focus was getting to the Premier League in Egypt, right? And obviously, there's more to it than just winning, winning the league and getting promoted. I mean, you got to have the dollars and all that stuff, right? It's more to it than just that. But for, for our conversation, so for Egypt, the idea was to go in, evaluate their academy, right? See, were, were there any players that were twofold, available for immediate sale because you need the dollars, right? Or not available for immediate sale, but could help the team move toward that promotion opportunity. So you look at that from the academy, evaluate all the first team players, not just, not just the first team players' ability on the field, but also first team players' contracts. Because in certain countries, because of the politics and the corruption and all these things, dollars are spent for various reasons, maybe not for the right reasons. Um, so you go in and once you have, once I have all that, that, then I begin to build their particular methodology and curriculum and also help them. I help them hire their academy staff. I help them find the right players that come in. I help them find their first team coach. I help them find their assistants. Uh, and I help them develop the way to grow. And I educate all of the coaches as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a it's a process, right? And it's not it's not a it's not a one time visit. You know, typically these things will be three or four visits a year. You know, over the course of maybe a couple of years to to really build this to build what they what they're wanting to do. And so, I guess to a degree, you're uh, you're almost acting like a, a search firm in terms of finding the right people to go into that club and have success with the vision that they've got. Um, right. Would did they again? Sorry, this is going back to a point I said earlier. Would they come to you and say, "This is the style of play that we want to play," or would you go in and say, "In my experience, this is a good way to?" It play. all depends. It all depends on the club, right? Some some clubs say, "Rod, do whatever you want. We're going to follow your way." We don't know much about football. We just love football. And then there's going to be others that say. You know, we, we've been doing this for 25 years, but we haven't reached where we wanted to go. So we're reaching out to you. Can you help tweak, you know, what, um, what we're doing? And I give you an example. When I was coaching in Montego Bay, Jamaica, as the head coach in the pro league down there, I went into a club that was two-time champions, right? Back-to-back -back champions with playing in the, the CONCACAF Champions League. So my goal was not to come in and say, hey, this is this is Rod's way. My way to come in and say, how do we make it three years? And how do we advance further in CONCACAF Champions League? So, you know, because you look at it, you see I there were in, in Jamaica, there were players that were on their downside who had helped them win two championships. You know how difficult that is, right? And a community to say, well, this player is not quite there anymore. We need to maybe scale them back or maybe move them on. You know the difficulties there. So it really depends on on just the whole approach of the of the club. And so how do you do that? Because I imagine that's that's challenging to go into that environment there. You've got a group of players that have been very successful in their own right um, in previous seasons. 
what what do you go in in the first few days when you're in that role? What type of things are you looking at to get an idea of whether they're going to fit to the ideas of what you want to bring in? Because although you might not make wholesale changes, there might be ways of doing stuff. You might want to press more, you might want to drop more, you might want to play a little bit more, play a little bit less. How do you go about identifying which players are going to be on board with this and which ones you're going to be able to move on forward with? For me, the most important thing of sport and the most important thing of football is leadership. We can talk tactics all we want. We can talk technique all we want. We can talk style all we want. But leadership and relational leadership for me is paramount. And you can look at some of the best coaches in the world and you ask them, they will give you that same reply. It's the relationship with the player to get the most out of the player. So for me, my first meeting with the group is I go in an environment like that and say, I'm here to help you get what you want. And I generally mean that. I generally mean that. I go into an environment. I want this group to get what you want to get. And I ask them for their insight. I don't speak much. I want to learn who they are as people so that I can understand the right words to say to them and the right non-verbal communication to give them so that we can be so that we can come together and that's so important so and ideally in the group when i met my first meeting is right i've got my got my list of points i'm going to talk it's down on my on my phone right point one point two point three uh the owner's sitting right beside me and it's just like you know these are these my first comment is how are you how can i help you and i and i I speak to them first. I let them speak to me first because I feel in those environments with guys, because you got to think about it, right? I'm going into a club that players are in the national team, players are some of the best. Forget what country that it is. It's all the same. When some of the best players in their country means that they're some of the biggest names in their countries, means some, some of the most supported in the community. So they, they have some pride about themselves. And they have some beliefs about themselves. And if for you to come in and, and say that you're bigger than them, that, that's not going to sit well. I mean, it just, it just doesn't, right? It, it, there's, a, there's a level of respect. Once I get to that point, then I can get them into training. And then I can evaluate them in training over the course of time. Then I can really see where we, where we go from there, right? But if I come in, don't get me wrong, I've done this because... We're all, we're all in sport and we're all, we all think we are, you know, in sport, right? You know, the, the thing is I always like to say in sport, we fear nothing, right? That's how we're taught as young kids. We fear nothing. We're the best. No one can stop us, right? And it's hard to break that cycle when you become the leader of a group. And I've gone into a group with that, that mentality and then it didn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, right? I just, it doesn't work, right? Uh, because you alienate. Yeah, some people some people buy in because they're very confident in themselves, but you still alienate a lot of people. And then you've got to build back. Why build back when you can continue to go up from where you are? Uh, and, I, and I think that's important. And so obviously what you've done there is you've gone in, you, you've spoken to them, asked them kind of for their feedback of where they want to go, etc. Did you have any situations where you had people not buying in, not buying into what you were trying to do or? or... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No question. So yeah. how, how do you go about challenging those players? Because obviously you want all the group ideally 
pulling in the same direction. Yeah, I mean, it's again, that become that's a that's an individual conversation one on one in a non threatening environment, not coming into my office. I'm sitting behind my big desk and my nice leather chair and you come in and you sit in this little chair and it's automatically this this pecking order. Right. That that for me, that doesn't go over well. So it's in a non you know, if it's over a cup of coffee, if it's after training when everyone's gone and you're just hanging out and talking but it's all, it's in a non-threatening environment. There are, there are times when you need that, I'm behind my desk, I'm the guy, and you're the player, and we're gonna have this conversation as me as the leader and you as the follower. I'm not saying there's not time for those meetings, um, but when you're trying to get people to buy in, you want to speak from their level, right? Speak from their level. And something, I learned this like when I first started coaching a coach, a coach by the name Yan Griffiths, a Welsh guy who taught me a lot. Um, he said, when you're coaching little ones, get down on one knee and talk to them so you can see eye to eye to them. And I was like, mm, okay, all right, that, 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 makes, that makes a lot of sense. So they feel, they feel don't feel threatened. So I've taken that even to the professional level to create non-threatening environments when I want people to buy in. Buy in. And, and we all know that leadership is getting people to do what they would never do for themselves. That's what leadership is. It's getting them to achieve things they never could have achieved on their own. And um, it starts by being relational. So if a player doesn't buy in, you know, I ask him, what would you like? Do you, do you want to be moved on? But your contract says you're here with us. Can you be professional enough to give me your best? Regardless of that, you don't want to be here or not. So those are all the conversations because we're talking, we're talking purely football. But at a professional level, we have to look at the side of it too, right? What is the business side? And, and there's players, right, for instance, like that didn't buy in, that we loaned out, not to our league, but to other countries. And, and we got a loan fee for that. And then ultimately, they got to sell on. We, we still won, right? We still won and they won by going to a different, to a different situation. So, And I guess that what you're doing there is you're... you're you're almost collaborating together to say, okay, this relationship here might not work, but let's get mutually find benefit elsewhere. If you look at the Meza Erzul situation for Arsenal, yeah, moment, yeah. it's the polar opposite. It's a, it's a yeah. guy who's on £350,000 a week who has obviously got no relationship with people in the building or managers in the building, and it's bad for both Arsenal are hemorrhaging money and Meza Erzul yeah. wasting some incredible talent. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, we're talking about the Ozil situation. I mean, I'm hearing that, you know, MLS club is offering big money, but I just don't know if they'll get him or not. I mean, it's just because they cannot match, come anywhere close to matching what, you know, what he's making there. Yeah, so obviously linking back to what you've said there, you, you've got US, Jamaica, Egypt. How does the game or how do these situations change from culture to culture? Because I'd imagine, you know, all of these are very different melting parts with different, different types of people. Um, how, how does that affect the way that you interact with the groups in that scenario? You know, it's, it's interesting, right? You know, obviously you have to look at it. Um, you have to look at areas of, the, you have to look at the social economic status of the country, right? Because, give an example, I, I did a little bit of work in a country called Sierra Leone. Um, and that was, you know, and there, I mean, you, 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 
you have players that don't know where their next meal is going to come from, right? They don't know, you know, in, in the academy setting, right? They don't, you know, you're, you're playing on dirt fields with water running through it where you take your bath and the dogs eat and go, you know, it's just really a, a, a dire situation. So you got to look at all those things. You got to look at the social economic status of the country. You've got to look at the religious part to the country because, I mean, if you look at, you know, the U.S., U.S. is a free, open, religious country. And then you go to other countries that are closed, that are strictly whatever, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever, whatever they are, right? Um, so you have to understand that because there's customs and there's things that you say and how you respond and how you interact with maybe females in the club. Whereas, so there's all these cultural things that you have to deal with, right? And for me, what I have, what, for me, what I always try to do is before I move, go into a country, I try to learn, even in Jamaica, where they, even in Jamaica, which is an English speaking country, they have some dialect that is different than America. So I try to learn these dialects and I try to learn things that show that I, I'm here for more than just, I want to know about you, your country, and I want, don't want to disrespect your country. Uh, I, <laughs> even there's foods, right? Foods that I just would no chance want to touch but I'm there, right? And I want to show the respect that I'm just, I'm more than just this football person. I'm, I'm, I'm more than that. I want to be, a, as I say about professional sports teams, they don't need to just be part of the community. They need to be in the community. And I want to show that when I go into a country, I'm not just there to get money, help you build. I want to be part of this culture for as long as I am there. So and how do you that's go what about I doing that? So, Everything before I, mean, before I, you know, before I uh, hit the ground, right? I try to read up on the country. I try to speak to people if I know people from the country, even if I know people from the, because, you know, and even in countries like, you know, there are certain areas of the countries are different and beliefs and ideologies and, and those things. So it's, it's learning, learning the foods, the culture, the music, you know, the, the popular television shows, people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It makes a, a whole heck of a lot of sense. So when I'm sitting around the table and they're having a conversation, I can be part of that conversation if they're talking, you know, whatever there is. So once I, once I learned that, right, but also, I also insulate myself in a way with people from the country too that um, can help me navigate that, right? So I'm not just there in Egypt. So I'm, I'm making sure I stay close to the owner, and I do little things like, you know, when I go to these countries, I, I, I you know, say, well, we'll give you a car. And you, no, I, I want you, I want to be with you when you're taking to places and we're there together so that I can, I can see their interaction as then I can hopefully build on their interaction. So it's, it's a very intricate situation, very intricate situation. And do you think it's improved you? Um, I guess as a coach or a consultant in terms of understanding relationships and understanding people and how to connect with people? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's done full bore, right? Because, you know, go into countries and you want to do your style of football, but your style of football, right, is only going to cause frustration to the group because they, they don't, they are not going to connect with that style of football, right? Um, and, and the game has changed about because globalization and all those things we talked about earlier, that football is very, very similar now all throughout the world. Uh, you know, back when we were growing up, England had their way, the Spanish had their way, and they were very distinct ways, right? It's, 
they're still distinct ways, but because of globalization and and the and the borders have pretty much just merged around the world, the game is 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 very similar with some with some outliers and some some different tweaks within within playing styles. Um, so you know you look at it from from that perspective of you go in, you might have your ideas, but your ideas might need to be tweaked. But it's just really helped me massively as a person, as a coach, uh, and in in a holistic way, really, it really has, um, which I'm I'm very 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 grateful and thankful for. And so, how do you um, obviously you're in that culture, you're embedded in there, and one of the things you alluded to earlier is about having to go and hire first-team coaches, youth-team coaches, whatever that may be. How do you go about hiring staff that you think are going to be able to fit together like a jigsaw to put the club in the right direction that you want it to go in or the owners want it to go in? How, how does that process, uh, process look? Typically, there are people within the club already that are quality people. And then the club, most clubs have already have an idea of they will give you a pool of people that you want to look at. So they've done some of the legwork. So it's not me going in and, you know, like being a salesperson and cold calling, calling a phone, calling someone on the phone. No, there, there's, there's been some legwork done, right? And then it's then you look at those candidates and those people to, to see who fits best. And the, and and the and the and the club may have their own ideas already that you know these are really the five, and we kind of like this person more, and what you have to be careful of, right? Sometimes you want to give them who they want because what you don't want to do is you don't want to give them who they don't want and there's no success because it, and it's not about me making a mistake. It's about not servicing the club the way that it should be, right? So I try to take in the modern day philosophy of leadership is that it's, yes, there's multiple leadership styles. Yes, there is ultimately one person making the decision ultimately, but you try to collaborate and use as much information as possible to come to the best decision. And then you ultimately make the final decision. And is there anything that whilst you've been traveling around and seeing all these different clubs that's really um, surprised you in a positive or negative manner? You know, I would say, um, for instance, like Jamaica, right? Jamaica is one of the, you know, I since it's a recent club. There are so many talented players that are there, right? There's so many talented players. But because of the infrastructure and because of the, the poverty level and because of uh, crime and corruption, a lot of those players never have a chance. And that's heartbreaking to me. But then you go and, you know, you, you see their top players and you're like, you know, I, I, I look at their top players and it's like, why, are you, why haven't you left the country? But the answer is easy because the infrastructure of the country and because of the, um, you know, the way things work in the country makes it difficult for players to get out. Yeah, it's, it's sad to, well, obviously sad to hear that, you, you know, you've got some talented individuals, there's kind of a lack of opportunity that they're not able to progress and you don't know how far they could go if, if they've got that kind of skill set. Um. One, one thing you're seeing more at the moment, um, or kind of on this topic, is a lot of American players leave the MLS or leave America and come across to Europe. Um, you look at uh, McKenney out in um, 
Juventus, obviously you've got Dest, who's out in Barcelona, Pulisic, who obviously was at Brescia Dortmund now at Chelsea. How do you think that's going to um, help the US game in the long term, um, having those exports go away to the European country? And then, um, well, yeah, how, how is it going to help? As, as a coach, right, most coaches, as what I, what I, what I firmly believe, I believe as a coach, we're here to assist the players on their journey to being whatever, to achieving and reaching whatever God-given level they've been given at birth. They have that, they have a, they have a finite talent level. It might be Messi's talent level, or it might be Joe that plays in the rec league, you know, at U6, and that's going to be the highest level they ever play, right? But there's a, there's a finite, I firmly believe, there is a finite amount of talent. No matter what you do, right, you can give them the best nutrition, best technical training, tactical training, physical training, psychological training. Their limit is still their limit. You're just helping them get closer to their limit, to that finite limit. You're just helping them. So once you recognize that as a coach, you want a player to be in the environment that will consistently propel them closer to their finite level, to their ultimate level of all the energies that they have to be that whatever player there is. Now, do you need help along the way? Of course you do. You need help, you need assistance, you need guidance, you need all those things. So you're, to answer the question, I've gone a roundabout way, but to answer the question, yes, it's important for these players, right? Because why be in an environment, unless you're that top one half of 1% of players, the Messi's, the Ronaldo's, you know, those sorts of the Zidane's, wait, you, you could go anywhere and be the best in those, whatever team you went to, right? Um, so you want players to be in the best environment that will stress them every single day. And the key is when they walk out of training, are they 1% better? Are they 2% better? Are they 5% better? Every day, taking that step to getting to that finite level of talent that they have in them. Do you think it will benefit um, the, the, the game culturally in terms of having these people at the very top clubs, young kids being able to see them on FIFA or on the TV and stuff, maybe using it as a role model type thing where people become more engaged with football because they can see someone who, you know, was from Oklahoma or someone who was from Idaho and, and they, you know, they can then use those as a role model to then go in and progress their own dreams, if you like. Yeah, and, and I, it's funny, I was watching the highlights of the Barcelona game yesterday and um, watching, you know, Durst go down the right flank and get a cross ball crossed in and um and and you know there then I then the highlights go and show they're under pressure the last parts of the game right I'm thinking if this kid can handle the Barcelona pressure when he comes back into the to the national team that culture that he has been in every day will permeate through that national team and you've got some players obviously players playing in MLS playing playing you know all over the world if that's permeating through that, right? And then you've got the peripheral staff in that situation looking at that and they go out and they, 
they begin to um, they begin to integrate away from the national team and touch other areas of the game. Yes, I believe it happens because I believe in the what I like to call is the multiplication the multiplication um, principle is that as a person, how many people can I touch to improve them? How many soccer players, how many footballers can I touch to improve them? And then I'm the epicenter, always think of it as an earthquake. I'm the epicenter, right? But, in, but an epicenter of an earthquake, as you go further away from the epicenter of the earthquake, right, it gets weaker and weaker. I like to turn that around and say the epicenter gets stronger and stronger. It gets away because you've multiplied and touched so many people. So again, I believe that that's going to, I believe that's going to manifest, like you said, through FIFA, right? Kids seeing it on FIFA, kids watching them on TV, kids having them as role models, you know, all those things, even for coaches seeing Jesse Marsh doing what he's doing, right? You know, so these are, these are things that um, are, are vital for our game to continue to grow. And do you think you'll get to a point where you're able to challenge the more, I'm going to do this in inverted commas, the traditional sports for the very, very top athletes? Because, I mean, if you look at LeBron James, an absolute specimen, <laughs> say with people like Clowney in the FA, NFL, um, you know, these these people are real super, super athletes. And it's one of those ones that if you had them in a soccer setting, what would that look like? Because you know, those athletes are unbelievable. Do you think it would, it can get to a point where those types of athletes choose football over traditional sports and you're able to get them kind of in the U.S. soccer team? It's all about the, it's all, it's all about the dollars. Because if you look at everybody that you talk, every, every, so let's take every, let's take football across the world. And let's say every football, football team has 30 players on, on their, on their on their roster, right? On their and that's signed to their club, right? Of those, you could probably say at least fifty percent of those players come from difficult upbringings, financially, poverty, close to it. You could probably say half of those, because, and you look at NFL, NBA. It's the money because it, it's, it is a way out. The, the countries that I go to, the countries that I go to, players see football as my option because I've been to countries where a school costs a, cost a $500 a year. That's more money than their family makes in, in a year. So they can't go to school. So are they going to be on the side of the road selling coal for, for less than pennies a day just to get a bottle of water and maybe a meal for the week or they're going to put all their energies in football for the, for this one chance to, to have life-changing generational money. When I say generational, it means Johnny makes a hundred million dollars. Generationally, his family's okay for a few generations or more. And that's what's going to change and have those athletes come. These athletes might love it, right? Kobe Bryant loves football. Kobe Bryant loves soccer, right? He loved soccer. He his dad was in the military, grew up and played, but he ultimately chose basketball, maybe because he loved him more. I don't know. I never met the guy, but I just wonder if he could have seen the money that he could have, if he had made the same money in basketball and soccer he made in basketball, 
would he have changed? Because it sounds like football was his soccer was his first love. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. So you have to, so it's, it comes down to the dollar. I think it's an interesting point as well, because, and you get this the opposite way around in the UK. In the UK, basketball over here is, you know, secondary and there isn't extensive amount of money there. Um, whereas you see it in the US, there's loads. In the US, you'd hope that they begin to build and go, actually, if I make it out of the MLS and make it into your Barcelona's, your Juventus, your Bayern Munich, someone like Alfonso Davis from Canada, the rewards at the end of it can help my family get out and they can set us up for life. But it's just not as readily available because you've got ESPN everywhere that will show you dunks of the night or free or, um, you know, <laughs> that shots or great touchdown passes, etc. Yeah. Cool. So, well, I guess the last thing for me is a um, question I asked everyone, which is who's the, the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Best coach I've worked with. Um, best coach I've worked with is Preki. Preki um, Radicevic. He is a Croatian that became an American. He played in the American, played in the U.S. national team. Scored an unbelievable goal against Brazil uh, years and years ago. Preki is about my age. He's in his 50s. So, um, but... Just, just his insight and his knowledge and his, um, his, his understanding of the game is just far. And he's he's an assistant with the Sounders. He's coached multiple MLS teams. Um, he's just gotten his pro license. If you if you think about it, remember you, I don't know. It's probably like 2015, 16. His name was floated around as potentially coming into the uh, into the Premier League. Um, because he had, he had abruptly left, not abruptly, he had left Sacramento. I was his, I was his, I was his, uh, I was assistant head coach under Preki. And um, he had left Sacramento because there was an opportunity in Europe for him. Didn't pan out. And it was potentially Newcastle and all these other things ultimately came out. And, um, but yeah, he's one of the, he's one of the top, just, just, just attention to detail and his, his insight to the game and his intuition, which, you know, that comes from playing at a high level and, and all these things and studying the game. So Preki, and then best player that I have been around. Oh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's hard to say because I would almost say, you know, I would almost say Preki, you know, because he is, I mean, he's one of the best players I've ever played in America. But there's lots of guys like Clint Dempsey, um, Darlington Nagby, you know, some these these guys um, that are just, you know, top class, top class players. Perfect. Listen, Rod, I really appreciate your time. And um, I hope that, well, the world opens up soon so you can get back to all, all your roles and stuff. But um it sounds like from obviously this interview, you're doing a lot of good work with a lot of different kids. So um, I'm sure they appreciate that and keep up the good work. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.